Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with biographers about their work. This time, we offer the first of two special episodes featuring multi-award winning writer Stacey Schiff. Her latest book, The Revolutionary Samuel Adams, was published by Little Brown and Company in October 2022. Schiff is a Pulitzer Prize winning and best-selling author of six books, and her articles have appeared in The New Yorker, The Washington Post, The New York Times, and several other publications. Stacy Schiff was interviewed via Zoom on October 19th of last year by fellow biographer and bio member John, better known as Jack Farrell. We're here today with Stacy Schiff, of whom it has been said in the Paris Review, Schiff has made a specialty of wading into the gaps. Her books offer complex, thoroughly imagined, stylishly written portraits of figures whose histories had previously been subsumed in a murk of myth or otherwise obscured. So Stacy, did you set out to be that person, to correct where our conceptions are wrong? I think it would have been terrible to have that as one's achievable address, right? Um, no, I set out initially just to try to write the life of a sometimes beloved French aviator. And that was a very traditional book with a beginning and a middle and an end. But I do think that one tends to walk into the library and look for the book that isn't on the shelf, and that's the book that one wants to write. And very often that turns out to be um, a bit of terrain which is less documented or somewhat swathed in in mystery or or murk, um, as I guess you said, than others. Yeah. I'm going to make you blush and read a couple of examples of this spectacular style that you've developed. The first one is from your biography of, get the, get this right, uh, Saint-Exupéry. Did I get the accent yeah. on the right place? Yep. The author of uh, um, The Wonderful uh, Little Prince, which we all read in high school. And at one point you write that he, the author, did not so much live fast as die early. Our fascination with him has grown as a result, as it does with all things that end before their time, from the Titanic to Marilyn Monroe. And here's a little bit from Vera, the Pulitzer Prize-winning biography of Vera Nabokov, the uh, wife of the great author, Vladimir. She did not remove the mask in the course of the initial conversation, either because she feared her looks would distract from her conversation, as has been suggested, or, as seems more consistent with female logic, because she found they might not. There was little cause for alarm. She knew a surefire way of turning a writer's head. She recited his verse for him. Now, in both of these excerpts, there's a little bit of Stacy, and there's a little bit about your protagonist. That, to me, is like classic Schiff, is the fact about the person followed up by a very wry and witty comment that makes me grin while I'm reading and makes um, what can be a sometimes very dry craft biography, a delight to read. So is this something that 
came to you naturally, or is this something that you've worked on consciously, or is it just something that just has developed as you've gone through, I guess it's five or six books now? First of all, it's very sweet of you. It's a lovely, it's a lovely, brilliantly loaded question. Um, <laughs> you know, do you ever try to sort of change your voice and you realize you just can't, you can only sound like yourself? I don't think it's something I consciously have worked at. It has certainly been my belief that you want to be able to trust the biographer to make you turn the page and that there is a certain amount of flair or whatever you want to call it that's necessary sometimes when you're you know, taking someone through a fairly complex thicket of history. Um, you sometimes need the authorial hand a little bit. So I suspect maybe there's a little bit of that there. But otherwise, I don't really have an answer to your question, except that I could try to sound like someone else on the page, but I fear I would end up sounding like myself. Right. Do you find yourself pressed or do you like to take advantage of the fact that you have uh, what you call an inert subject and limited material? Does that uh, compel you to try to be a little bit more witty as you write because you don't have you know, 7,000 volumes of diplomatic correspondence, <laughs> say, like you had with Benjamin as in Franklin, some cases. as opposed to you know, a few sources from antiquity on Cleopatra. I feel as if, and I'm sure we've all noticed this, whenever there's a paucity of material, the biographer is compelled to step more prominently onto the page. You know, you're, you have to be there. The, the machinery is more visible. The, the narrator's voice is somehow more audible. You have to be a little bit more inventive. So yes, the, the case with Cleopatra would be something like the fact that we have exactly two accounts of Cleopatra's death, both of them may be somewhat mythical. They contradict each other. So the only solution there is to make Cleopatra die twice. But she obviously didn't die twice in real life. So that's a little bit of a narrative trick, obviously, to sort of say we have these two versions. I realized there was just no way to reconcile them. The only way to write about it was to really write it in two different ways. And so, yes, I think you have to be more inventive at those moments. On the other hand, you could argue it the other way. The the loads of that, that entire you know, shelf of diplomatic history, those linear miles of, of diplomatic history. First of all, gnawing your way through that, which can take years. And then you end up having to distill it, which is a difficult process. And then you end up having to sort of hope that you're going to forget some of what you've distilled because you still have so much material. So it's in a funny way, an odd trade-off, it seems to me, between um, the subjects where you have, you know, really limited resources or sometimes nothing to go on. And the places where you have tremendous amounts of paper, but the documentation doesn't necessarily yield revelation. You have a lot of documentation, but it doesn't necessarily answer essential questions. Do you have a preference for either one or do you try to stagger them so that you know that this one's going to be very research heavy in a distillation, whether the other one is going to be a more um, a creation of your imagination? Wouldn't you agree that like they're both hell, basically? They're both just really <laughs> difficult. <laughs> so it's really a choice between two evils. I mean, which poison would you prefer, essentially? But I've consciously chosen subjects where I knew I could get into the archive or I knew I read the languages that would be necessary or I knew I had you know, the ability to fly places I would need to fly to interview people. I don't think I've ever chosen a subject based on the documentation but if I actually looked at it scientifically, I would see that I did go from the Nabokov book where, in fact, much of what I needed was not there. Um, Vera's letters to Vladimir, I always assumed would turn up. They never turned up. Um, for years, the idea that they would turn up was my dream. And now it's my nightmare that those letters might surface. So I wrote the book and I promised, of course, to write from both sides of the correspondence when I proposed the book to the publisher and, in fact, wrote it from only one side. But then I went from that to the Franklin book, which is... It just it was years and years in the archives, much of it 
reading 18th century French on microfilm in an underheated French archive. It was truly a joy to, to research, but massive amounts of documentation. There's two and a half times as much material for the eight years that Franklin spends in France as for the rest of the life combined. You know, is it an accident that I followed that by Cleopatra where there was no archive whatsoever? Maybe not. And then from Cleopatra on to the Witches of Salem, where you could argue that there's a tremendous amount of documentation, even though some of the essential pieces of it are missing. So in a funny way, I suppose I have slalomed back and forth between the over-documented and the under. What kind of biography would you recommend to someone who sits down and decides that they want to write a biography? I still think I would always prefer to have more material than one could possibly digest. You and I heard a talk recently about the hundred volumes of Gandhi's papers. I'm not sure I would wish that on anyone, but I do think that I would always prefer to have more than I could possibly use because you otherwise worry so much about what has been lost, what you could potentially be getting wrong and how you're going to provide context for those great gaping holes. I mean, I didn't have a Cleopatra childhood, for example. How do you how do you provide a childhood for someone for whom you have absolutely nothing whatsoever? So I suppose that if I were looking at this scientifically, and my fe- my fear is I've never really looked at this terribly scientifically, I would always err on the side of the over-documented life. And so one thing that I've noticed uh, reading your books, as the late David Frost would say, marvelous, marvelous, is um, <laughs> uh, the way you begin with a scene. You begin with the particular and then you move to the general. So rather than having a uh, uh, an opening chapter of uh, ancestral begettings or a description of time or a place, you are right there in your books uh, with your protagonist in a gripping scene in Cleopatra's, for example, on the shore of the Mediterranean in the army, fighting her brother for control of the throne of Egypt in the midst of a Roman civil war. And then later on in the book, there's a marvelous four-page description of her childhood education. And there's another terrific four-page description of the city of Alexandria. Again, is this something that you sat down as a veteran book editor and said, um, I think this is the way to do it? Or is it just you sat down with your legal pad and your mechanical pencil and (laughs) decided that um, I want to get this scene down to grab the reader? I have a huge amount to say on that subject, but before I start, do you agree about the over-documented? Do you have a preference? You've never had a, a paucity of materials, right? No, when you do public men, there's usually a lot of uh, material in it, and actually I'm somewhat intimidated by the idea that I would have to show Jack in the book more than I do, which is part of the reason why I admire you showing Stacy as much as you do. Well, you know, I always assumed I was writing biography to avoid writing about myself. So now you've kind of scared me out of the bushes. But to answer your question. Oh, wait, wait, wait. wait, wait. On on that point, you know, I mean, you you keep saying that Cleopatra was not beautiful, but you are a lovely, beautiful woman. And and in your description of her, aside from perhaps um, a narrower face and higher cheekbones, you don't sound that different from Cleopatra. And I was wondering why. <laughs> wow. Is there, you know, I, are we going to get some self-criticism here that we didn't that we didn't realize? I at one point I was told at Cornell when I was there researching the Nabokov book, a woman kind of haunted me by coming up and saying, You look just like Vera, but I've never had the you look like Cleopatra, <laughs> Jack. Thank you for that. So I have two problems with the starting is usually something that I obsess about. I don't know about you for years. I mean, I just think that point of entry you've got one shot at the reader and that's your shot, right? And I don't want to miss it. And then structurally, of course, the whole book rests on the tone that you set in those first pages. So you don't want to turn the person out of the restaurant after the appetizer, basically. So it's very important to me to get that right. I have a problem in that I am very impatient with biographical childhoods. 
I'm sure that says more about me than than you care to know, but there's something always, it seems to me, a little bit contrived when we sort of try to write a childhood of a figure as if that's like a miniature version of the person he's going to become. And so for whatever reason, I seem to have landed on people either where there's very little material about their childhoods or where the childhoods, like in the case of the Franklin book, were not necessary to the rest of the work. And in fact, at one point, I went back and wrote a piece a few years ago about Vladimir Nabokov, and I realized that I had never in that book written about his childhood. It was the first time I'd actually done so, and it was you know 20 years after I'd written the book. Um, so part of it is not wanting to start in the obvious place and in a place where I'm not all that myself intellectually engaged, or which I feel is slightly dishonest, I suppose. The other is just that I feel you've got that one shot at the reader, and you want something that either challenges his preconceptions or just entirely seduces her. And in the case of Cleopatra, I think we all, I mean, I always assumed I would start with Cleopatra leaping out of the carpet in which in fact she was not wrapped, but Elizabeth Taylor was before Julius Caesar, um, alias Richard Burton. So I always assumed the book would start there. And then it suddenly occurred to me that we all expected that. And that's the Cleopatra we all envisioned, but the Cleopatra of whom I was writing was this very shrewd, very strategic, very cool-headed woman who was, when she was 18, out in the desert, raising a bunch of mercenaries to wage war against her teenage brother, to whom she was, in title anyway, married. And that that was the moment where the book began, and that's a Cleopatra whom we don't know. So off I scurried to, you know, this I don't wish on any biographer, trying to get into that now demilitarized zone between Egypt and Israel, where she was then camped. That was how I felt that book had to open because it was an unknown and unexpected Cleopatra. But for the Adams book, the new book, The Revolutionary, it was really clear to me early on because it came as a shock to me that we all know that Paul Revere gets on his horse late one night in mid-April 1774, but we, but none of us thinks about where he's going. And the fact that he, where he's going is to warn Samuel Adams and John Hancock of arrest is kind of you know thrilling. How do we not know his destination? How is it possible that we know all of us about the ride and not think about where he's has, he's headed? So that that was really where the book had to begin because it puts Adams at center stage and it also makes you sort of have to think about what you actually have brought to the table and what perhaps has been lost along the way. Is visiting a place where your subject has been important? Yes, I'm of the Bob Caro school there where I feel as if you really want to visit and see and sense and smell everything your subject ever did. Even if you can't retrieve that world, obviously with Cleopatra, it's particularly difficult. Uh, You can see where the, you know where the Mediterranean is, you know where the moon is and pretty much everything else has changed. Even the Nile is not in the same place. You know, the sky looks right, the moon looks right, the air smells probably about the same. Everything else in Alexandria has been lost to us. But for the rest of it, yes, I'm sure I, we all do this. You want to read the books that your subject read and you want to, you know, if you can see the movies that they've seen. I've, I've never had a subject of which that was true. Um, but insofar as you can possibly burrow into their obsessions, I think you really want to because every little bit of that brings you closer to him or her. Yeah. In a book like Cleopatra, you sometimes have to use wiggle words like she would have seen or she would have learned or no doubt. And you do it quite skillfully in that they never stand out. But is this something you constantly have to wrestle with? Like, are you worried about going too far and, and reaching a conclusion that perhaps is not even covered by the uh, the wiggle word? 
Absolutely. Those are words, those are words with which I think we're all uncomfortable and of which I'm not proud. On the other hand, I feel like it's an enormous relief to the reader for the biographer to say, we just don't know, to be able to say, I can't, I can't deliver this piece to you because it's, there is no record here. I, I don't feel like there's no shame there. And I would say that that was a, a lesson learned in the Franklin archives that, you know, having spent all of those years in Franklin's papers and still not being able to tell you who the mother of his son was, you know, something so essential as that, so important as that. I felt as if it was a fairly, not attractive, but a fairly understandable stance to be able to say with Cleopatra, you know, of these things, we cannot be certain. This applies also to judgments, but have you ever been tempted to cheat? But there's just a story that's been just too good that you just knew you wanted to get it in there, even though one little imp was on on your shoulder saying, put it in, put it in. And on the (laughs) other end was an angel saying, don't do it, don't do it. (laughs) I've had a, a sort of, this is a sort of the opposite account of that. There was a brilliant description of a 1949 Russian literature class that I got from a very well-established academic who had taken Nabokov's literature course that winter at Cornell. And he described to me this meeting of the course. There were 12 people in the room. And on the first day of class, Nabokov sent this copy of Pushkin around the room for each student to read through so that he could gauge how good their Russian was. And the book made its way around the room. Every student mangled the language. You could see Nabokov's head sinking closer and closer to his chest. His, you know, The Russian was just being murdered by each student as the book made its way past them. And then it landed in the hands of the only African-American student in the class who began to declaim in perfect Russian. And the student was Paul Robeson Jr., so it was this extraordinary story. And, and you know, Nabokov said, where did you learn to speak like that? And, and Robeson said something like, you know, PS 29 Moscow. And it was just this amazing encounter. Um, pay dirt, right? You're, you're going to put that in at all costs, even if it's not part of your story, because it's so good. Except that I then called Paul Robeson Jr. to get all the details. And he said, that's a brilliant story, but I never took a course with Nabokov. <laughs> so, you know, there are those moments that are crushing, but but it's also the kind of thing that makes you think, why am I trusting eyewitnesses? And I mean, I don't know if you've had that experience, but sometimes the most misleading material I've had is from people who've actually met the subject. It's not as if the documents don't lie or don't mislead as well, but it's astonishing. I mean, the the old Russian adage is no one lies like an eyewitness. And, you know, there have been some sort of false leads um, for me from people, particularly with with Sentik Shibeli and the Nabokovs, obviously, from people I interviewed. Yeah. And I think there's also uh, somewhere in your one of the interviews that I read that you had done, um, you talk about the fact that after a while, an eyewitness doesn't actually tell you what they saw. They tell you what they remember telling other people they saw and adjust themselves accordingly to the part of the story that the other person liked. And over time, the story gets molded and formed and the human brain just has a way of adopting it so that this person could pass a lie detector test telling the, the same bones of the story, but in an entirely different way, because it's the fourth or fifth time, and they're adjusting to try to, to appeal to you as the uh, interrogator. Absolutely. And, and I'm sure that's happened to you as well. I mean, I think it's human nature. But, and you also sometimes get stories that people didn't actually live what they read in the competing biography before you arrived. I mean, they clearly like, looked it up before you got there. And then almost verbatim, they recount to you what they told the previous biographer. So yeah, I mean, I mean it's like this enameled version of the past. I don't know what the word for it is. Yeah. Uh, so how do you um, how do you deal with that? If you're a young biographer starting out, how do you decide what is the properly critical way to weigh a source? What made you read all those 
descriptions of the different characters from Cleopatra's time and decide that, well, this one was an elaboration and this one is ridiculous. This is a satire or this is a story made up for political criticism. But ah, Plutarch, Plutarch's the one who got it right. It's the biggest question, I think, with, with which we contend, right? Um, I used to have this ironclad rule that unless I had something from two people, I couldn't use it. But then, of course, you ultimately have situations in which you only have one person who was ever in the room. And by the way, two people alone in a room, it doesn't mean that one version of the truth is coming out of the room. So you're already you know, up a creek in that respect. But I, I mean, I think to a certain extent there, that's where some of those wiggle words come in. With Cleopatra, I was very aware that all of these sources, with very few exceptions, most of these people are writing, are not writing contemporaneously. Almost every one of the people who writes about Cleopatra writes at least a generation after she has lived. Um, and Plutarch is getting stories from his grandfather. So it made sense to me, or I realized at one point researching that the only way to make the book work was to warn the reader at the outset, to introduce the reader in the introduction to the historians and to sort of make clear whom we were going to attend to, whom we were not going to pay attention to, who had a problem with women, who was writing on behalf of a Roman emperor, who had never been to Alexandria, who hated Egyptians, you know, basically just where the biases were. And to somehow weave that into the book in a way that made a sort of certitude possible, but also still watery in a way. And I think with the Nabokov book, I, I had a little more fun with that. Again, there were certain questions I couldn't answer initially, like why did Vera Nabokov go to class with Vladimir every day when he taught at Cornell? What was she doing in the classroom? It was a little odd, after all, to have this woman sitting in the classroom lecture after lecture. And the Cornell students who had studied with Nabokov were sort of the Greek chorus of that book. So when I went back to them, and this is you know pre-internet, so tracking them down was in itself an ordeal. But when I went back to them, they all had completely different reasons for why Vera was sitting there. And it occurred to me that it was hilarious that they had all come up with these different reasons because they really didn't know the answer. But the way they explained it and the way they saw the couple was, you know, more interesting in a funny way than what what act Vera and Vladimir were actually playing. And the answers were, you know, he was blind and she was his seeing eye dog or she was there with a gun to protect him or, you know, they were just they were hilarious. So I ended up using all of those conjectural pieces of evidence from the students in the book. Uh, in the case of Samuel Adams. Several times you have to make the judgment that this particular piece of writing sounds like him, or this particular piece of writing was most definitely him, or this particular writing was most definitely not him. How do you get the expertise to make that judgment, or do you do it by consulting other professors or historians who give you their advice? Well, there I did err on the side of the conservative, in the sense that there are a number of pieces that I would like to have claimed as Adams's, but I couldn't let myself because I wasn't sure. So erring on the side of the conservative, Adams writes under 30 pseudonyms. I think there are probably closer to 36, but I couldn't be certain of the others, so I left them aside. And the longer answer to your question and the more interesting answer is, it's not always easy to tell. He was not the only person nattering on about liberty and, and freedom in the 1760s. A lot of people were, and a lot of people were very eloquently in the same newspapers. But very often, two things happened. One is he would repeat a phrase, or, a, or more than a phrase, an entire sentence or several sentences in a letter to a friend, which was signed, and then it would turn up again in a piece. And if those pieces sounded like Adams, and they reiterated things he had said elsewhere, I felt I was on somewhat more certain ground. His grandson, 
had already identified a fair number of the pseudonyms in the published works of Samuel Adams. So I had those to go on, and then I simply found more pieces under those signatures, which again is not entirely certain because there are certain pseudonyms that people seem to really have liked, like Cato, which a lot of people seem to have written under the same pseudonym at various points. So that wasn't always certain either. And then the other really helpful piece of this comes from a obsessive compulsive hardware store owner named Harbottle Door, whom Bernard Balin uh, scared out of the bushes. And Harbottle Door, whom I do think I need to name a pet after, from the early 1760s, he realized that history was being made and he began to keep a complete collection of newspapers. And he annotated, I don't think the hardware store business was very good because he annotated these newspapers to within an inch of their life in this really kind of like crazy quilt of cross-references and often identified Adams at the top of a column. So, you know, a column will appear as Vindex and he will have written at the top S. Adams. Now, it's possible he made a mistake. So I could have been misled there. But every time he does, it seems to be a column that either the grandson also had identified or that sounds just like Adams. So I was kind of triangulating among those pieces. The problem with Adams, though, is a lot is written by committee. A great deal is written pseudonymously and a great deal is unsigned. And he did not leave behind for posterity a tremendous amount of documents. Um, I love the way that you tiptoe around the question of the Boston Tea Party, who did it and who was inspired. I come away with the feeling that he knew what was going on. He knew what those bunch of guys at the back of the hall were going to do. And perhaps he kept the meeting going to let them slip away quietly and and do it. Tell us a little bit about Samuel and the Boston Tea Party. Um, the tea has arrived in Boston. The feeling is that to unload the tea or to let the tea be consumed is to sacrifice everything that the colony has fought for for 10 years. It is to basically acknowledge Great Britain's right to tax. So as Adams puts it, he doesn't trust to the private virtue of his countrymen not to drink the tea. So he prefers to trust to their public virtue in rejecting the tea. So a sort of town-wide effort is made that a town begins to meet in these larger and larger meetings in an attempt to figure out how to reject the tea, how to have it sent back to Great Britain so as to not have to pay the tea duty, which would be an acknowledgement of British sovereignty. And he says, he writes several weeks before what we consider the Boston Tea Party to, to his chief correspondent in London and basically says, you know, unless I'm mistaken, I'm going to have some really interesting news for you soon, in a way that intimates that he very much knows what is afoot. After the destruction of the tea, the royal governor will say, Adams never was in greater glory, which also implies that he's, you know, certainly complicit in, if not the mastermind behind the destruction of the tea. It's an important thing at that point for him to stress the principles over the perpetrators. So not only does he never take credit, but he never, no one names names. And this is where Boston is brilliant. People really could keep a secret. But after the Boston Tea Party, as you know, there are 16 people who had been there who were deposed in London by the authorities who are attempting to punish Massachusetts for what it's just done. And when they deliver their accounts and they name the most active people at the tea meetings, Adams is always first on their list. So, you know, it's it was not by any means necessarily his brainstorm, but he is certainly highly active in what becomes known as the Boston Tea Party. That was Pulitzer Prize winning author Stacy Schiff speaking with fellow biographer and bio member Jack Farrell. Schiff's latest book, The Revolutionary Samuel Adams, was published by Little, Brown, and Company in October 2022. This interview was recorded via Zoom on October 19th of last year. 
The second part of this conversation will be featured next week. To learn more about Bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a great day.